PS powered by Seth. Welcome to the weekly review on RPS, the radio show where two grown men and a gifted young mind discuss some of the hottest and most relevant issues in pop culture. This week we speak about the queen of the dance floor, Rosine Murphy, the nature doc slash love story between a camera man and a cephalopod on Netflix's My Octopus Teacher. Also from the streaming platform, we get even more paranoid thanks to The Social Dilemma. And we shall be discussing the new album by Fleet Foxes. So how about we start off with my friends, welcoming my friends, Ben Cardew III. Hello. Marvai Verdu. Hi there. And ladies and gentlemen, here is a snippet of the Queen, Rosine Murphy. It's gone cold. It's horrible weather. Just a snippet, because we're very legal like that. But it's a wonderful song, and uh, you should all go and, go and listen to it. It's one of my favourite songs of the year, in fact. So there we go. Um, And it's kind of appropriate, maybe, in a way, because this week we're talking a little bit about hope. We're trying to see where we can find a little bit of hope among these very uh, troubled times, shall we say. Uh, We're all in here. We're in our masks. But we think we're still coming across uh, in splendid hi-fi. And we are going to talk first about a new documentary that has blown our minds and very much touched our hearts. Uh, it's My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. And Johan, you introduced me to this. Tell us about it. I mean, I saw a friend talking about it on Facebook and uh, it was a Monday. I was, I didn't know what to watch. You know, when your brain is monged out because it's Monday and you just, uh, you don't really feel like getting deep into some series. And you know how when you're scrolling through Netflix, you leave the cursor on the poster long enough and it automatically plays a trailer or begins the show immediately if it hasn't got one. Well, this documentary starts while I'm not even paying much attention. And after two minutes, I got swept in. The visuals, the music, it was all very soothing and hard to ignore. And it is a most fascinating visual document of a part of this earth, you know, the tip of the South African coast. It's the story of Craig Foster, a professional and quite renowned cameraman who's been shooting wildlife for most of his career, and the bond he forms with an octopus. And I'm thinking, am I really going to watch a documentary about a cameraman with an octopus? I mean, seriously, a man going through a midlife crisis in his 50s. But the footage is so breathtaking. I mean, the use of the music, similar to the type of soundtracks made by Johan Johansson, which we're playing in the background right now, or Olaf Arnolds, which I really like, and his calm narration make for very pleasant viewing, especially on, as I say, a Monday night. Now, I'm not much of a nature documentary buff. Anyone can sit through Richard Attenborough, Richard Richard or David Attenborough's, uh, David Attenborough. David Attenborough, the brother. Sir, Sir Attenborough. Any of his documentaries, because they're all fascinating. But this one is very different. It is more of a love story rather than a nature documentary. And Foster doesn't dwell on, you know, the facts or scientific facts or anything. You know, he, he spent a year going down every day, tracking and observing the octopus in its den and in its habitat. How it behaves, how it camouflages, how it feeds, how it defends itself from predators. And it shows how intelligent the octopus really are. 
something we all kind of know from hearsay, but you see it with evidence, visual evidence. And by the time the film is reaching its end, I was in tears. You know, so pure and emotional is the whole thing. Um, ben, did you did you have the Kleenex at hand? Now I'm very glad you said it's a love story. Um, I didn't I didn't quite cry, but I certainly did uh, send you an enraged text about the sharks that attack our octopus uh, friend. <laughs> Um, and I was feeling a, li- a little bit moved, yeah. But I'm glad you said it's a love story because when I saw the trailer, basically the the, the presenter uh, talks about actually loving this octopus. And I got to say, this put me off a little bit. I was like, really? <laughs> You're in love with an octopus? Well, okay, you. That's great, but just um, yeah. But you were so infused that, that I watched it, and in the end, that was one of the things I like most because basically. I think you can you, you could do this kind of thing and you could be like, yes, I observed it in a very scientific way and it was very interesting. Or you can just be like, I don't care. I, I love this octopus. I'm going to say it. And he, he did it. He let all of that all of that out, like basically opening himself up for ridicule, um, which I'm not doing because I, I, I fully support. And he really gave a lot of himself and he gave a lot of his feelings, which is why I think it really worked because you felt the same. You missed this 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 octopus. I mean, we're not going to give out spoilers about what happens, but octopuses only live one year. Okay, that's... no, that's a spoiler. Well, I that's... haven't watched it. It's a it's a natural fact. That, that, okay, that... I didn't know that <laughs> fact. I want the octopus and the man to be married and have a wonderful <laughs> life in the ocean in South Africa. Yeah. But yeah, I can't wait to watch it because we were actually talking about this last week, but off the record. And the thing that sold me the most was when you said you woke up the next day and you started sobbing again about the octopus. And to me, that's... You just sold me. This is going to be my favorite movie and I haven't watched it yet. So. I, I was even reading about it a week after and they were. I was reading an article where they were talking about a, 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 a very happy scene in the thing and again, I started kind of sno- sobbing again. It is... It, it, the, it, she put her tentacles around my heart anyway. And I mean, just to add a bit of comedy, I'd like to know what the cameraman's wife thought of all this you know because he's basically cheating on her with an octopus in a way I mean he does get sucked off in, in oh Johan well, she puts, her, she puts her, her tentacles around his arm and, and they suck you know they they've got the the suckers right uh, and, and and you can see it's, it's a it's it's a moment where you can see that she's happy to see him, right? The way she 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 entangles him, you know, after the the two hundred and whatever day that he's been going down, um, respectfully uh, interacting with it. But he's very he's very good because he, as a professional nature documentary filmer, he knows not to interfere. But there are moments when he he can't help himself, and he actually does want to sort of protect her or warn her of of the predators. But but he he refrains himself, you know. And and that's the beauty that I I get angry sometimes when you see some nature documentaries with the cameraman, you know, or or when you see live footage of something happening and and people just sitting by and filming. But it it's also quite a testament to the professionality of camera operators. You know, they have to they have to be um, impartial. Yeah, they, well, they can't sort of interfere with what's going on. They've got to sort of just relay what they see. It's 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 a it's very virtuous uh, in that profession, you know, uh, st- standing by and and just filming because that's your job. You have to do justice and and well, it depends. It's it's quite a prickly subject. We could argue about this, but the way he does it, it's almost poetic because he is letting nature run its course and those 
effing pajama sharks, which you, you oh. hate, <laughs> and you're just like, oh, you burst. <laughs> But at the same time, they are graceful, and, and they are, you know, they're part of the whole spectrum. You know, it kind of makes it, it makes it all very poetic. I don't know. So the, the, this is one of the interesting things. Like basically, the pajama sharks are uh, hunting our octopus, who apparently is billed as little octopus, um, and um, we hate them. We can't stand them. Whereas our octopus goes hunting uh, crabs and um, lobsters and things like that, and we're like, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> grab that crab. <laughs> I kind of worry because you think, damn, a crab. It's got a shell, you know, and this octopus wraps itself around the crab and you know d- consumes it. And it's like, damn, a crab could easily um, um, uh, clamp it, clamp its, I don't know, do a bit of damage. Get its but pincers, yeah, yeah. Its pincers, yeah, but no, 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 no. It, it, she's very savvy. She's very, she's very smart. Amazing how she camouflages. There's a whole thing about how she, she, she makes herself look like something else by grabbing all these other objects and, and dead seashells and stuff. And it's really fascinating. It's really, it, it's almost, desi- she's almost like a designer. Yeah, she, she's that intelligent. So she has I'm, good taste. I'm interested to say that the, the octopus was pleased uh, to see him because this is sort of one of my minor issues with this. And actually, I was looking, I was reading a review of it in New Scientist, which was very positive, but it did say octopuses, we know so little about them. They are such a strange animal that you can't really give them human emotions. You know, you can't anthropomorphize uh, in 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 that way because we just don't know what they're like they've got this weird consciousness that like 70% of it is in the tentacles they are nothing like human beings so th- their slight criticism was I think he does that a little bit too much he says you know it was like she was pleased to see me or it was like she was playing and mm. we really really haven't got a clue if that's the actual if that's the actual case although that's I would say that's a pretty minor sort of um, complaint because he he's not trying to be a scientist I was thinking this documentary would be perfect if we ever go back to nightclubs. Imagine this in the chill-out room. I mean, most clubs don't have chill-out rooms these days, do they? But like, it, it, imagine if they did, just sticking that documentary on. That would yeah. be perfect. Because it, it doesn't demand much uh, much from you. you it, it already makes you pay attention because it is so beautiful. You know, it's an underwater kelp forest. The colours, the way it's filmed. Obviously, he's got the best cameras in the world, digital cameras. So, uh, it you know when you just need to watch something that isn't making you think too much there's not a storyline it's like wait a minute what's this name's character or whatever or ah, it's like just mung out in front of the screen and you let it all it invades you no no invade is too strong a word it, it, it permeates you in a beautiful way it really does wrap its tentacles around you sorry for repeating that pun I couldn't help it <laughs> you're a sucker Johan <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but what, what did you think? I mean, one one of the points in this is um, the the cameraman uh, and the main character talks about how he was having a kind of crisis in his life, and he doesn't really say what it is, and um, that's sort of fair enough because it's none of my business and it's his documentary. But at the same time, I kind of wanted to know, and it sort of maybe it, it made me a little bit a little bit harder to care about what he says because you don't know what's happening he's like some kind of unspecified crisis and I'm like I'm sure it's real but like without actually knowing it I wasn't so invested in him maybe? it's it's midlife crisis it's it's that's what I found very connective because everyone goes through uh, a midlife crisis or in my case a 40 year old crisis so it's easily relatable it's not so much like 
oh, uh, something happened. You know, he he's ap apathetic with his profession. He's no longer inspired. We can all relate to that kind of feeling when when you just feel that, especially nowadays, when you feel that nothing matters or uh, whatever you do, it's pointless because we're being led to the the apocalypse by these incompetent politicians and stuff. And you lose mirth. You lose. I don't know. It can happen for so many reasons. And I think everyone so many people can connect with this man's um apathy shall we say or this this kind of midlife crisis and the fact that he finds inspiration in the smallest of things in the most he literally finds ins inspiration under a rock <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah yeah he literally and it kind of thinks well maybe i should just go on walks into nature and just sort of start focusing on the leaves the way they fall and and befriend an animal Mar, have you ever fond, uh, formed a bond with a uh, with another species? <laughs> it's not as if I have never been in contact with another human or something. I'm an alien. Um, yeah, of course. I, I love animals and I love humans as well, but mainly animals. I that's why I think that this is the movie for me because the love story between a human and a dog, a, an octopus, whatever you name it, to me is like the the best kind of love story, like the, that movie about the dog that goes um, looking for his owner every day at the train station. Oh, because he in Japan. Yeah, yeah, but oh. I don't remember the name, but that kind of m movies, it, they move me. I can cry now thinking about that dog and just imagining this freaking octopus that it's not even a, an animal right it's not it doesn't have an skeleton so i don't know if it's like considered an an animal i, I don't know i maybe i'm wrong um but yeah i this is my kind of movie animals and humans wait you're telling me they made a, a movie about hachiko the the yeah, japanese dog with the richard girl no, yes. I didn't know because I. How did you not know? I didn't. I I knew about it because I've been to Shibuya Crossing in Japan, and and you always yes. see the statue, and oh, you know, and, and the movie. If you want to cry, you have to watch that movie, and then you're like, okay, mm, this dog is the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to Earth, and I'm not deserving of being alive <laughs> because. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm only just looking at the cover of the of the film. I, I mean, there's obviously a Japanese version. Already. Oh, I'm already getting teary-eyed already. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, my girlfriend can certainly not watch that. You know, she she can't watch anything with dogs. She gets really paranoid and and oh, a dog story. Okay, but wait, does Richard get? Well, does Richard Kier play a Japanese man? <laughs> I mean, his eyes are slightly slanted, oh, but gosh. come on. Oh god. I didn't even think about that, but maybe he was not actually Japanese. If not, that's very problematic. If he's playing a Japanese man, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> can, can, I just, can I just say, like, uh, yeah, amongst all the um, despair of 2020, one thing about my octopus teacher that I really liked, it basically made me think, well, if you, us human beings do basically screw it all up and end up killing all of ourselves, like, I'd be quite happy for octopuses to take over, you know, they seem exactly. like they seem pretty good. Like the main point of this kind of movies about animals being super nice and being super lovely and, and all of this is that humans don't deserve to be on Earth and be like the kings of Earth. So we should should just go away and they can all have this utopia of animal kingdom and they love each other. And Apart from sharks, sharks can. <laughs> yeah, right Shall we have a little bit of a listen to Johan Johansson? Yeah. Well, we move just on. To talk about album of the week coming up next.
It is time to talk about an album that has ushered in the autumn season. The Fleet Foxes' new album, Sure. Ben. Uh, well, <laughs> sure. One of, one of the reasons we, we decided to, to talk about Sure um, was because uh, Robin Pecknold, who, who leads the Fleet Foxes, or possibly is the Fleet Foxes, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, um, he basically built it as a brighter sound. Um, and he's called the album A Celebration of Life in the Face of Death, which rather nicely fits into our sort of theme today of hope and uh, octopuses. In fact, um, I didn't try. I'm kicking myself now. I really should have watched some of the octopus documentary with Fleet Foxes over the top, because <laughs> that would have probably worked quite well, right? Yes. Um, but I've got to say, I sure is one of those, ba- one of those records, um, and this occasionally happens, that kind of has you like questioning if you ever liked the band in the first place. You know what I mean? Like When you hear like a latter-day... I'm sorry about this, Pixies, but when you hear a latter-day Pixies record, you're like, well, it's all in, in place, but it's rubbish. So, like, why do I like Pixies before? <laughs> and you go back to early Pixies records, you're like, no, that's really good. The same thing happened with me and Shaw. So I listened to it, and I was like, no, this is this is all right. It's okay. But, like, it's a bit boring. And I was like, but I thought I used to really like the Fleet Foxes. I was like... Did it. And they had, after a bit of internal debate, I went back to their, their first album and listened to it. I was like, yeah, no, I did really like that. But it's very it's such a thin line between between good and bad with Fleet Foxes. It's kind of incredible. Because I, I, as I said, I found this just a little bit too bland. Like, it's one of those things where you can say it's really good. Like, obviously, the songwriting's good and the arrangement's good and it's well sung and has that kind of thing. But just when it got to sort of song number 12, which was one I particularly didn't really like... Um, I was just a bit bored, just really, really wanted to to listen to uh, something else. Um, it was just, it, it was like sort of too much sugar or something like that, or eating a whole pot of, of, of dulce de leche or something like that. <laughs> After a while, you're like, oh, God, no, that's horrible. I want to have, like, vinegar or something like that. <laughs> but, Johan, you were a big fan, right? Like, I didn't know I missed the Fleet Foxes that much until I hit this album a third time. I mean, this is the songwriter who defined what we've come to loathe about his generation in one song when he sang, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in its way that you see. <laughs> so, but you know, by the time Fleet Foxes had released the helpless, uh, Helplessness Blues, I'd had enough of the millennial pastoral Neil Folk that soundtracked GoPro videos of influencers in the wild. But now, in 2020, all the Fleet Fox back catalogue works as an antidote for the anxiety. And this album, is a I found it was a very welcome addition to the canon. I mean, at first listen, I found the, produ- the production a bit too polished, almost like it was going straight for the kind of mainstream radio that warrants a type of sheen so that it sounds good in car stereos, right? But then... I kept listening to it a second time and a third time and then I'm like okay hang on let's see who's who's who is this Beatriz Artola who engineers and mixes the album ah wait a minute she's from Bilbao she's Spanish and she's worked on major pop records like 21 by Adele at long last ASAP by ASAP Rocky Britney Spears's uh, Femme Fatale along with other albums by Tinchy Strider Keen Ellie Goulding Tyre Cruz it's like wait a minute why is What's, why did he choose uh, to work with a producer with these kind of credits? But uh, on the fourth listen, then it's like, I get it, I get it. You know, she's, she's not the one for gritty, edgy textures. She's, she's, she's going for something big. And first of all, obviously, it's encouraging to see more names like hers on production credits on albums. And, 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 and it works, you know, because it's ambitious and it's, it's pristine, it's clean. 
it's something that Fleet Foxes have always gone for. You know, the, the, the albums that sound rich and recorded in, in expensive studios with lots of wood around it and stuff. And I, quite, and I quite enjoyed it. All of a sudden, it's like, I really need quality coming from my loudspeakers. You know, I'm kind of a bit jaded with, the, with all the albums that are made on laptops and the bedroom sound and all that. It's very nice. I've enjoyed it. But I need a bit of rich syrup with my pancakes. And my God do Fleet Foxes load on the syrup. But don't you think it's a bit too much? Like, when I said I went back to their first album, um, and kind of not knowing what to find, it was a lot more, there was that little bit of electric guitar, the voices sound a little bit more distinct. They've got a load of voices singing on shore. They've got loads of people to, to sing in. And on the whole, all those voices sound very similar, with one very notable exception, um, which is uh, Uwade Akere. Yes who uh, provides vocals on three tracks, but most notably on the opening one, Wading in Waste High Water. Um, and that was one of my absolute favourites because I thought her voice gave it something a little bit different. Like Robin Pecknold's voice is almost too similar to the instrumentation. When you get this this, this singer in, he's got a sort of... I want to say... naive voice, if that if that makes sense. That kind of sounds insulting, but it's very much not meant to, because I really, really like it. Um, and... The contrast worked a lot, a lot better. Hang on, so let's not skip over this. The, I, I'm actually, I, I get very much enamoured with the music when there's a, a bit of a story behind it, right? And uh, the story of this vocalist Uwade Akere is quite amazing. Mar, did you, did you look her up? Um, no, but I, I agree about that. This song is to me the best one. Like when I started listening to the album for the first time, I was like, yes, I, I want to hear all of it. I'm, I love it. But then I got bored because it was too long but tell me more about this woman well Yuwade Akere is a she, she's this young girl studying at Oxford and uh, yeah. according to a statement uh, said by um, a statement by Robin Pecknold he said she was studying at Oxford at the time and was kind enough to take the train to France for a day of recording with us I absolutely love her voice and I'm so honoured she opens the album uh, he discovered her because someone sent him a video of her on Instagram singing a cover of a Fleet Foxes song Mykonos and he thought wow she's she's really good she's amazing she's got lo all, all her Instagram is flooded with covers from by the Strokes by Sebastian Sobral uh, I don't know she just covers everyone she's got really good uh, she's got a really good musical taste uh, well not just taste uh, she, she, she knows everything and she plays everything but very innocently not uh, totally unpretentious it's just her sharing these these covers so all of a sudden you know, she gets DM'd by Robin Pecknell. He's like, hey, come to France. You know, we're going we're gonna to go to this studio uh, to record. And, and they, they obviously must have arranged and paid for her tickets and stuff. And not only did they, did they get her to sing on three of the songs, one opens the album, the other one, sure, closes the album. Let that sink in. <laughs> you know, this is some random girl who all of a sudden she's on a record that's going to be listened to by millions of people or thousands. Anyway, you know, Fleet Fox's record. Um, uh, not only that, because uh, they saw how uh, excited she was in this studio, playing on all these instruments that were available there, they decided to record, uh, let her record some cover versions of her own. Uh, of other, you know, Beatles songs and stuff, but for her to take home, like here, have some proper expensive recordings made and take it with you as a gift, you know. As I say, th this is all hope. This is all very hopeful. These are very heartwarming stories that, that go beyond the simple songwriting of Roman Pecknold. But, okay, I, I, I really like that story. I really like the fact they've done it. I think that is 
undoubtedly a, a, a good thing. But my point is that basically she provides brilliant moments, or most specifically a brilliant moment on this album. That's what I mainly found from this album, brilliant moments. Like I could pick them out like in Hara, the uh, ending has this lovely kind of like riff which just goes in um, for uh, a little while. Um, it also features something known as hocketing. Did you know that? What is hocketing? I'm going to have to give you the Wikipedia definition. It's the rhythmic linear technique using the alternation of notes, pitches, or chords. In medieval practice, hocknet, a single melody is shared between two or occasionally more voices that alternately one voice sounds while the other rests. It's like oh. two people sort of singing... Call and response No, But really short bits, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, you you look it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I'll exactly. listen to it again. <laughs> uh, what I, yeah, sorry. Uh, no, I was going to say my stranza has some uh, lovely chords uh, towards the end, and quiet air Giola again right at the end has these really un unexpected jazzy chords and and kind of swing that that I really loved. But um, it it's it, it feels to me. And I came up with a phrase that, that I was really pleased with. We're eating the icing, not the cake. Mm. Ah, but what? Sorry. But speaking of that, oh, of, God, of that cake, uh, on the song Going to the Sun Road, it features Brazilian singer Tim Bernardes as the song is drawing to a close. And in a surprising way, like, that, that's similar to when you're biting into a piece of cake and all of a sudden there's like a passion fruit coulis in the center. It's like, oh, that's a nice welcome surprise. It's amazing. It works beautifully. All of a sudden the song seems like it's finishing and you hear this Brazilian, si the, uh, this, this, this guy singing in Portuguese, bossa nova e kind of. Um, and, and, it's like, and it just feels very warm. It, it, Fleet Fox's music is, is, is soothing music. It's music you play in the car when you're driving i can imagine when you're watching a sunset or a sunrise it's very savvy of him to of them to release it on the on the 22nd of september which is the autumn equinox you know it's all very studied i like those kind of good decisions this album is full of very good decisions including Jara, the song, it's an homage to Chilean folk singer Victor Jara, who was tortured and assassinated by military dictator bastard Pinochet's executioners. So it's reassuring when talented singers take care of the task of remembering the souls taken away by the evil forces. You know, it's hope again in the glimmer of... Now, I don't want to be the bringer of doom, but can I give you a bad decision made on this album for Go. me? Yeah. Right, the song Cradling Mother, Cradling Woman contains mm. a sample of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, which is taken from an a cappella version of Don't Talk, Put Your Head On My Shoulder. Now, I'm a, I'm a very boring person. I think we talked about this the other day, that I would listen to lots of Beach Boys outtakes, and I do. And I know the outtake in question, and it's absolutely beautiful. And you think, oh, my God, he's got permission to sample it. That's really clever. What a very good idea. And what does he do? He samples him going one, two, three, four. Now, there may be more of it in that. I tried to listen many a time. I was like, is there anything more of that? Or is he just saying one, two, three, four? And it just, like, it's just, that was all I could hear. One, two, three, four. And it's just like, this is kind of symptomatic. You've had a good idea. Um, you're coming from a really good place, but it just didn't quite come off. I know what you mean, but I think maybe it's also like, I'm not going to take that, I'm not going to steal from Brian Wilson because, first of all, his talent is un un uh, is unrivable. <laughs> is that a word? <laughs> you can't match it. You, Unrivaled, you to, yeah. You have to have big cojones to, oh, sorry, or big, uh, you have to be very brave to, to, to steal from Brian Wilson or to put yourself on his level. So I think it's just a little nod. This album is full of nods to the greats. The opening song, you know, uh, um, get, paying homage to Bill Withers, to, uh, to uh, damn it. 
what's the name of uh, well all the uh, Judy Sill obviously who's always been a clear reference he's he's homaging all these great folk singers and singers and soul singers uh, from the past it's it's very it's full of gratitude this album and 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 not only in his lyrics in his actions as i say shining a light on this young singer from oxford um working with beatrice um Damn it, I'm, I'm terrible for names today. If I don't look at my Artola. notes. Artola. Artola. Uh, giving, her, giving her not only, you know, she's, her name features on the album cover, which is a very strong statement. You know, it's uh, engineered and mixed by Beatriz, Jara, uh, Beatriz Artola, produced by Robin Pecknold. Boom, that's it. That's Fleet Foxes on the cover. A cover which is going to be discussed in many music magazines all over the world. That's a, it's a great way of also sharing the sharing the limelight with with other the talented people that are usually behind the record, and it also gives the sense that it's 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 been a joint effort between him and Beatriz all throughout. You know, there's even a story about he was recording in Los Angeles, in 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 a very in a very popular studio. Uh, which is called the Woody Jackson's Electrovox Studio, sorry, where he had access to Sinatra, uh, the, the, the drum kit played on Sinatra's tours, the vibraphone played on Pet Sounds, Fela Kuti's organ. You know, this is an expensive sounding album. It's, it's beluga caviar all over this recipe. And he had to cut his session short because it was when they were announcing lockdown in the United States uh, in March. So he decided to fly back to New York where he would be close to Beatriz because he knew that she wouldn't be allowed to fly back to LA or anything. So it's like, okay, he quickly secured his flight. He made his arrangements. And I think that's when they decided to start recording in Electric Ladyland Studios, which was probably available. And uh, it's, it, it was that important for him to, to be closely working with her throughout this record, which is also quite a nice story considering there was a bit of talk about how egos almost dismantled Fleet Foxes. You know, when Josh Tillman left uh, to become Father John Misty, he kind of left mm, in a bit of a mm, disagreement, shall we say, with the creative direction that, that Pecknell was, 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 was directing. So, you know, I could imagine that there was a little bit of bad mouthing going on, like, oh, is he this egomaniac who controls the Fleet Foxes? But it's like, well, mm, no, he's just a person who's got a very strong vision. And I think it's crystallized with this album. By the way, you were mentioning, is this a solo effort? The Fleet Foxes, as we've seen them on stage, will be present in the future. He's actually said that they do plan on making a, a more of a, a joint effort of an album uh, further down the line this year or next year. So, But this, this might be a bit of a Robin Pecknold solo effort which he can't perform live with his band. So, uh, I don't know. Um, but it's still a Fleet Foxes album, uh, in, in my respect. Shall we have a listen? This is my favourite song off the album, um, which is Young Man's Game. snippets that we have to play damn you licensing <laughs> we love licensing just to, if anyone's listening licensing is definitely our friend exactly well uh, thanks or well, licensors licensee well anyway um so 
I, we're talking about hope. We've been talking about hope. We've got a bit of hope from, from our octopus friend. Uh, Johan certainly has got some hope uh, from <laughs> the Fleet Foxes. And now uh, we're going to talk about a documentary that everyone seems to be talking about. Over the last few days, like loads of people have sort of said, oh, you've got to see this, you've got to go, you've got to go exactly. and see this. Um, and i got to confess, uh, it's a social dilemma currently on Netflix. And I saw some of it. And then let me confess to both of you, I fell asleep. And then I, I, I woke up and saw the last bit. And I told my wife I didn't like it. She said, how do you know you were asleep for most of it? And I was like, yeah, okay, all right. But there's one person whose views I trust on that, and that is Mar. Right. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> um, yeah, you didn't go anywhere wrong by sleeping <laughs> during the documentary because I agree <laughs> you could sleep during the documentary. But let's try to make it nicer. So this... It, it, it was everywhere. You're, it was, I think, the top one watched documentary or even in the whole Netflix platform. It was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it on social media, celebrities. Everyone were like, oh, yes, what's this um, documentary? It's going to change your life, blah, blah, blah. And at first, it's something that I wouldn't have watched uh, to begin with because... I love the internet. I don't need anybody to tell me, oh, yeah, social media is evil. You're you're going to get brainwashed, whatever. Like, I get it. Yes, mm, let's talk about something else. But I wanted to make an exception. Everyone was talking about it. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I, I need to open my mind and be open to new things. But no, it was no exception. It was everything I thought it, it would be. Um, I don't want to hate on everything so I'm gonna say just <laughs> one thing that I like so I don't sound like I'm hate driven every single episode but like you can you there's things that are well done during the documentary I it's an hour and, and a half long so there's lots of things being said mm, most of the things that they say we already know but whatever let's try to forget for example they said um, well, basically, the thing is, I haven't explained it, um, they have these big people of big social media platforms, you, Pinterest, Facebook, um, Instagram, peop not Mark Zuckerberg, but people like <laughs> the inventor of the like button, the infinite scroll inventor. The, there's a guy that works at Gmail and he's like an ethical person that mm, tries to make it more, and the technology is more ethical. So these are the people that are the main focus of the documentary. So they give you the inside scoop, like, oh, you have like this little hole where you can see the inside of these big companies that you know nothing about. And that's the attractive part of it. They explain to you that we are measured everywhere. Even the time you spend looking at each, each picture is, is measured. So they have a better algorithm. So if you spend more time looking at a picture of a cake and less time on a picture of a singer, they will show you more cakes and less singers, whatever. So mm. this is kind of interesting facts. Like you get to know some of the conspiracy theories are conf confirmed. But I don't like documentaries that try to make you scared, that um, feel, um, try to demonize social media like at its biggest. It, it, uh, it's a very important subject, and I, I agree it has to be discussed, but not in this way. I didn't yeah. like it at all. So I'm going to make points of the things I don't like so you can agree and maybe 
then the parts that you've seen, maybe you can agree or disagree with what I'm saying. But the first thing um, is that there's nothing we didn't actually know about. Their main point is, oh, your data or on Instagram or on Gmail or on whatever you're on the internet is being sold to advertisers and companies. So you're the product that is sold on the internet. So if the, the app's free, um, the, there has to be some way of payment and you are the payment. I feel like we kind of know that. Like I, I was not completely oblivious of the fact that my data was being sold. I feel like that we already know. So to me, that being the main point is kind of not surprising. I, I don't know. I feel like there's more things we can talk about. I, I was surprised by that as well, because it's like, yeah, I know. I know they sell my data, and I know they, they, they target it. I mean, they, what was it that the, the someone said? If, if you're not uh, the, the consumer, the, you're the product or something like that. I've heard that quite many, many a, a time. And I was like, because I've written quite a lot about technology, and it's like, yeah, I know. I know this is this is how it works, and there was absolutely no, no surprises there. And I thought... The, the way in which they vigilate, you know, having like three people who apparently who are like meant to be the people living in your phone. It's like, I pump up the advertising on, on. It's just like a bit, I thought that was a little <laughs> bit cheesy. I think, I mean, it's obviously good. Like people do need to know this, but I thought people did, if you know what I mean. I thought, exactly. You have this big interview. You're interviewing these big people who can give you this kind of inside scoop, things you've never heard of, or give you a more in-depth analysis of, of what we already know, right? Like, we know our data is being sold. We know mm, all this stuff. Give us an in-depth analysis of what could happen, what could go wrong, what could we do. This doesn't happen. It's just like, that's the second point that made me mad. It's just making you scared of using your social media platforms. I feel like the main point of, of the whole documentary was like, oh, delete your Facebook, oh, blah, blah, blah. It's we can go deeper, we can do better, we, we're we not going to delete our Facebooks, we can just accept what it is and see the, the flaws that it has and and try to work it and see what maybe we can add more laws and make more regulation. And there's one guy in the whole um, one hour and a half documentary that kind of pinpoints this regulation stuff, but mainly it's be scared. Um, panic there's no way to go without panic in this conversation and it's like maybe there is maybe it's not that are there any do they do they interview any experts on mental health <laughs> on how social media affects uh, people's mental stability there's no expert but at some point they they give a, a graphic that shows that suicide rates and internal like people going on mental um, hospitals have increased like a hundred percent in a few years and and then I read somewhere that while this is actually true and it social media has a big impact in that this increase and blah 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 it's not um, actually a hundred percent accurate because it also has to do with economy and not having a stability anymore and things being more um, difficult for young people and and how is it more difficult to have a stable life and all of this. And of course, there's a lot of mm, these things going bad because of the pressure so social media has, but you cannot make it, say it this way, without uh, making it more clear that it's not 100% this way. 
One thing that interested me was um, I was a lot of this they were talking about Facebook. Maybe again, this was one of the reasons why in my uh, waking time it didn't move me all that much. And they talk about Facebook being so incredibly addictive and everything. But like, I haven't used Facebook in about right. a month. Mm. Have you? Like the no. pro- probably the only social network I use with any regularity is Twitter, maybe maybe Instagram. But Facebook I just can't be asked with. So like any anything they were saying about Facebook's like, yeah, fine. All right, Facebook goes into Instagram. But it's like, okay, I don't I don't use it. And like if if they can get I think almost what the reason I don't use it is because they have targeted it that much to making money that if I share anything and don't pay it, no one pays any attention. Yeah. <laughs> And then the rest of it is kind of dominated by people saying, sort of, arguing. Yes. You know, which is like, and it's just like, I can't, I can't be bothered. And it was like, oh, Facebook's so scary. And it's like, yeah, but (laughs) if it was so scary, surely I'd be utterly addicted. Yeah. I don't know, what do you think? Like, you- I, I, I posted the other day, it's like, look, we've, ru- we've all ruined Facebook with our political diatribe and these opinions and, and just sort of uh, sharing news that is designed to make us angry and frustrated and weary of the world, whereas it used to be fun. I remember when Facebook was all wedding pictures, you know, you got to see <laughs> old schoolmates, see how they deteriorated. And <laughs> you get to, even the pictures of, I miss the pictures of breakfast. Remember when they became really annoying? It's like another... <laughs> orange juice with a croissant do I really need to see another muffin but I actually miss it now it's like damn it I prefer that and 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 especially there used to be a lot of humor you know you'd you'd laugh and you'd share memes and stuff okay people do it on Twitter people do it on Instagram but you could always expand a little bit more you know could you could write a bit more on it and and I don't know I thought as 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 people who do know how to write or or it was almost like everyone could have their little column shall we say mm-hmm. And when it was fun and, and, and joyous, it was good. But now it's also a reflection of the world weariness that we all suffer, that it's just become very boring and stuff. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing this documentary to see how, I mean, as okay, I say. No, I'm going to see a final point and you're gonna not going to watch this documentary. <laughs> oh, okay. I feel like there's lots more that are more interesting that touch on the same topic and that give you a better view on this stuff. Because this documentary, we, okay, let's focus a second because what what are documentaries documentaries are um like this kind of movies but there are fact real fact checked um information about real world and they try to raise awareness um within what's actually happening now so having that in mind how did they even have the thought of introducing a fictionalized story in between the interviews, like instead of using, I don't know, if they're talking about how it moves lots of people, they put a, a picture of a demonstration or something or how it affects blah, blah, blah. You put mm-hmm. a picture of the news. But no, they did like this whole tacky black mirror kind of uh, story that it was obviously by ma- acted by actors. And it made you feel like you were being manipulated by by the documentary instead of being manipulated by my phone I felt manipulated by them by, because I thought if you really need this drama this um, dramatization of yeah. what is actually supposed to be real um, does it mean that the problem is not that big or that you need to increase the the triggerness of everything to <laughs> make people trust you I don't know okay so I'm going to weigh on this right because it's a Docudrama. It's described as a docudrama. And I can't stand docudramas. I hate them. I genuinely detest them. Um, basically, things that mix, uh, obviously, documentary with with, with drama. Um, and the reason I hate them is because I, 
I just well, I don't think they're necessary. Also, for me, they really dilute the story. And just to briefly sort of uh, move over, have either of you seen Wormwood, which is another series on Netflix? No. It's a docu docudrama about um, a scientist, Frank Olsen, who was allegedly dosed with LSD by the CIA and then and then killed himself or was killed or, or whatever. Um, and it's a docudrama, and I couldn't get my head around it because I was just sort of like watching it. And it's like. I didn't get for ages that they were interviewing his actual son because they started off with this fictionalised thing. So I was like, oh, it's all fictionalised. And then, like, this bloke comes in and I was like, it took me, I think, an episode in to realise, oh, that's his son. No, this <laughs> is an actual real life. And it, it just annoys me. And also, in, in the case of The Social Dilemma, we were watching it. It was all normal, like, like a documentary. Um, and then they had the first bit, I think, with his family, which was very obviously drama because it wasn't very well acted. <laughs> and then back comes in Tristan Harris, Tristan, who's like the, the ex-Google person, the sort of computer ethicist, and they showed him setting up a, a, some kind of talk, and I was like, oh, he's not real. This is drama as well. Okay, and I couldn't... And like, my wife was like, no, he's he's real. But like, it sort of gave this like weird, otherworldly... Yeah. I didn't know what to believe. And it was... I don't know, it was so weird that maybe in other um, documentaries you, you really need um, to, you cannot go back and have mm, videos of what you're trying to show. But in this case, there's plenty of examples you can take off from real life to make it feel more serious. And why on earth do they put the madman actor trying to play this evil person? It's there, There's like, you haven't watched it, so there's like supposed to be like three people inside your phone throwing at you like things to make your life terrible and miserable so and um, they make this boy teenage boy he, they transform his life into a misery he ends up arrested because of these three evil men in his phone that first um they make him not socialized because they make him stay on his phone all the time. Then they make him be a, a super, like, political bad thing. Like, I don't know, I think it's supposed to be like he ends up on a conspiracy theory kind of thing. Or, well, there's, or, like, there's some weird company called EC or something like that. And it's like, European Commission? What the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah, It's sorry. so weird. I, I was like... I, I'm feeling so weird watching this. Like you really put me off watching it. I don't want to. Yeah. I'm not going to waste time now. I mean, it's bad enough. Also, I've got to say, like the the, the actor um, who is uh, in this dramatization playing the the character of Ben, the the kid that gets that's very addicted to his phone and bad things happen, is played by an actor I really like, Skylar uh, Gizondo, Gizondo, who was in Santa Clarita Diet. I don't know if you, you, you saw that. Anyway, I really like him as an actor, but I just thought he was terrible in this. It was just like, oh, Ben, come come to soccer practice. No, I'm looking at my phone. <laughs> oh, Ben, come to soccer practice. The whole Doesn't story plot was so bad. I, I don't think it was the actor's fault. And, w and which actor from Mad Men? Um, I don't remember his name, but it, it's a, an actual pretty... Kind of famous actor, I think. Jo the guy who plays Donald Vince, Draper, Vincent Paul oh, Vin Carthi yeah, Vincent Carthizer. Oh, yeah. he's one of the best yeah. ones in Mad Men. He, he plays like this triple person that's supposed to be your algorithm, <laughs> and uh, they keep throwing, him. yeah, throw him an ad, yeah, make him stay on his phone, and 
It's so weird. Oh, I like so bad. Off-putting. I like bad, uh, bad set pieces. I, I kind of is it. Yeah. Is it tacky? Is it? Is it a bit? It's super oh tacky. God. You're gonna love it if you kind of love this. I, I kind of enjoyed it, but from a hateful <laughs> spot, I was like, yeah, that's so bad. Yeah, <laughs> so bad. It's it? good. Or do they actually have a lever that they push to sort of increase the I advertising? I think they have like a button, and and at some point they they one has like this inspirational moment, like, do you think about Ben's life at sometimes? Do you think about? the repercussion what we're doing and the other ones are so evil and they're like no we're so bad because we're social media and i was like what <laughs> I, i'm i'm three years old and and i'm at a school um speech about drugs and alcohol and this movie is trying to tell me in a very bad way that i shouldn't do alcohol drugs or social media apparently because it's so evil and we're not gonna do a very good explanation we're just gonna make this man make you feel bad this imaginary imaginary man feel you bad so that sounds like uh, a couple of or thumbs down uh, and one prospective thumbs down are you going to watch it Johan? I'm going to watch it just to see the bad <laughs> the bad set pieces the, I, I love can... I love a bit of trash seriously I mean it's it's not that that bad but I I wanted to make like the balance okay again since everyone's so uh, on Twitter, giving raving about it and stuff, so I feel like I have to hate it a double <laughs> ma- to make the balance normal again. So yes, yeah, so like we know, we are kind of manipulated by the internet, by social media, where data is being used. We get customized ads, and the thing is, if that gets in the wrong hands or if that is used in a the wrong way it could get really messy and it could make things worse and we have to take that into account and i think that's the whole point that should the the documentary should be about like what legislation should we have in mind in case someone uses this very powerful tool to to make mm, the wrong thing because we already know we live in a capitalist society and and we will be given this lot of information of trying to buy 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 but this is how we live this is uh, is it surprising we have been watching ads on tv every single day since we were born and now yeah. it's they're just customized so now they're interesting to you uh, whereas back then it was not interesting to you so maybe that's a little mm. better so yeah Mm, I don't know, I feel like there's points we need to talk about, but from a different point of view, from a different angle, this was just messy to me. Do you think it would be possible that if you get bombarded with so much advertising of things that you supposedly are interested in, like pairs of shoes or travels to a, a paradisical island or something, do you think you would, it would, be, you would become so normalized that you will no longer crave those things? I... That might be a positive effect. Yeah, but but it's actually kind kind of happening. Like I don't know how it applies to other people, but I see lots of things on my Instagram, for example, where I see the most ads um, that of things that I would love to have, but I'm just like I'm just seeing just like you said so much of them that I'm not gonna buy everything but good adverts are no bad thing like a good advert is l- something you need like, oh, let me let me give you an example I'm, I'm sort of one of these people that's like, advertising I never kind of like 
any attention to it or whatever and recently <laughs> god my life's boring we've been talking about getting a new sofa <laughs> so like a brochure came through through the door advertising loads of new sofas like oh that's useful and that's how alright that's not digital obviously but that's kind of how good advertising works and wait 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 that's even scarier they they, <laughs> yeah, they overheard you life. and they slipped one under the door <laughs> no they went to everyone in, in the block oh <laughs> yeah alright but <laughs> oh, oh, black no. mirror <laughs> <laughs> oh so, shall we? Uh, let, let's listen to uh, a song um, which uh, is used in this. It's used in kind of a cheesy way, but it's a lovely song. We're going to have just a few seconds of Nina Simone with "I Put a Spell on You." Nina Simone with I Put a Spell on You, which features uh, in new documentary uh, The Social Dilemma. Possibly it's the best thing in the new documentary Social Dilemma, so just listen to Nina Simone uh, you know, in, instead. You know what gives me hope and puts a smell on me every time she releases an album? Hope. Rosine Murphy. Oh, Sorry, oh, I, I'm oh. not very inspired today. That's the way I brought it in. <laughs> ben, you've got the scoop. Rosine is back. Well, she never really left anyway, uh, but we saw her, I, I saw her, I watched her perform at last year's Primavera Sound, it was amazing, as always, she's such a great performer, such a treasure, what's new? i got to say, um, last year's Primavera Sound, um, I had to leave because, you know, I had to look after my children in, in the morning and also my parents were staying, and um, I got a very excited uh, message from you just as I was leaving just as I was leaving you were dancing to Rasheen Murphy and I could hear a brilliant song like my favourite song of this album I think it was Incapable playing I was like oh how can I go how can I go and it was already about three in the morning so I, ha I had to go home I had to go home um, but yeah her new album Rasheen Machine uh, is an utterly brilliant work of sort of disco pop it's kind of right you know how Dua Lipa came out yeah. right and it was kind of disco-y and housey, and everyone was like, oh, that, 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 that's really good. And it was. That was a great album. Well, this is sort of like bringing the 12-inch version, if you will, of, of, of Dua Lipa's album, because that was always like short songs. Um, Rasheen Machine features kind of lots of extended mixes and long songs. Like the opening song, Simulation, is eight and a half minutes long. Mm. And it just really sets you sets you in the mood. It's like, okay, I'm going I'm to be into this now. And you kind of settle into it. And it's, got a, it's really, really disco um beautifully instrumented uh really well sung great songs and also uh, very interesting lyrics as well like because the, the song called incapable which i've gone on quite uh along about talks about being incapable of love which i think is a very interesting thing for someone um you know now in their in, in their 40s to be singing it's like looking back on on relationships it's like what well, am i actually incapable of and that's very wow. untypical disco um kind of thing it's funny how disco won't go away especially this year when and, and i've mentioned this every time we talk about dance records you know uh, mm -hmm. obviously this was this the record must have been planned way before this whole bloody pandemic and stuff but it's 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 kind of weird you know rosine's done her dance rosine's always doing dance records but uh lady gaga's last album was purely uh, meant for the club Dua Lipa, as we mentioned. Uh, Kylie Minogue has gone back to sort of retro disco, late 70s, early 80s. Lady Gaga. Exactly. So it's, it's uh, what, what's happening? Why, why do you think all these major pop stars are turning to disco rather than trying to look for the new sound? 
Well, disco's sort of always been there. Certainly, well, no, not always, because there was a time when disco was sort of seen as the worst possible music in in the world. Yeah. Um, but I guess there's kind of a lot of people want to dance roundabout now. Um, you know, when the world is is difficult, dancing is no bad thing. And actually, potentially, you could I think you can also see like dancing to disco as, in a way, um, a political act, because. I frankly don't see how you can listen to any disco and can be like a sort of prejudiced person. You know, mm. how could you be like anti-gay or racist or anything if you're listening to this kind of music? I mean, I'm sure people do. Um, but it's like making a statement, isn't it? It's like when you're, you're dancing to this joyous, inclusionary music. Um, and I think that's rather a beautiful thing. Yeah, but remember how disco became really trendy in the underground clubs, uh, what, seven years ago? Or, or oh God, I've lost my timeline, but all of a sudden you had people like, I don't know, who were very popular in the, in the pop zeitgeist, like Jamie XX, for instance. And his DJ sets were amazing because he would mix classic disco, 70s disco with, with, with some of the more modern stuff, with his own kind of remixes. Um, all these boiler room sets that were just... Ch- championing sort of really uh, cr- um, 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 uh, deep, deep from the crates, so we say old disco edits. It was everywhere. Obviously, Daft Punk came with uh, Random Access Memories, which was a pure homage to the ways of making big studio uh, disco. And all of a sudden, the fact that these artists, these major artists, are, are, are kind of releasing disco records now, I feel like it's a little bit out of step with the times but in a, in a good way like they're not doing it to cash in on a trend because it's no longer trendy in the sort of uh, super hip spheres shall we say which you, which defined uh, which defined the pop trends uh, but they they're kind of just doing it out of love for disco or because these people really want to have a dance and and as you say uh, yes we we do need to learn how to dance on our own in our houses whichever way um, it is a welcome addition yeah well the album is released tomorrow if you're listening on on Thursday and i wanted to end today if i may with a quote from Roisin this is from an interview she did with the quietus um, and i think I, I don't know i want this kind of printed on my uh, gravestone Please don't stop dancing. That's another part of my manifesto. I dance around the park and in my house. Scientists know for a fact it's the best cardiovascular activity for your brain. It burns pathways. It's maths and motion and absurdity and poetry. It's magic stuff. I never stop dancing. And the record is like going back to that girl in the flat in Stockport, freaking out to biting tongues, rolling around on my orange sofa. We'll see you all next week. Uh, We're going to play out with just a little bit of Narcissus by Roisin Murphy. Thank mm-hmm. you.